listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Blake Matthews, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, we're going to hear from Beck Legato as they speak with a representative from the Ithacan and two members of the Society of Professional Journalists as they recount their experiences going to MediaFest this past weekend in Washington, D.C. But first, we have new Andia and Ayla Shaw with Community Beat and George Christopher with this week's Politics Beat. Ithaca police responded to a report of a male found bleeding and unconscious in a parking lot on West Seneca Street on November 3rd. Officers arrived at the scene at 11.06 p.m. and determined the man had been hit by a vehicle. Police did not report the extent of the victim's injuries, but stated he is in stable condition after being taken to a trauma center. The police department is asking any witnesses to contact them with more information. The Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services celebrated the official opening of a new project, Founders Way, with a ribbon-cutting ceremony on November 4th. Founders Way offers 75 units of rental housing for residents making 30 to 100% of the area's median income. The $27 million project includes townhomes along Buffalo and Court Streets, 13 units set aside for individuals and families moving out of homelessness, and non-residential space for the Learning Web and the Village of Ithaca. Founders Way is located at 320 West Buffalo Street, where the Immaculate Conception Church was previously located. The Tompkins County Sheriff's Department arrested and charged a juvenile student for threatening to, quote, shoot up an Ithaca City School District school bus last week. Police said the student made the threat on October 28th and was reported to authorities the next day. Police said the student admitted to making the threat, but no weapons were found in their home. The student was charged with making a terroristic threat, a Class D felony, and was given a date to appear in court. The Tompkins County Department of Emergency Response is encouraging residents to create an account for Tompkins Siren before the end of the year if they have not done so already. Tompkins Siren, or Safety and Incident Real-Time Emergency Notifications, replaced the SWIFT 911 mass notification system in the county and is used by local authorities to send alerts on potential hazardous situations involving weather, traffic, and other emergencies. A new coalition promoting civic engagement called Your Voice, Your Vote held their kickoff event at the Southside Community Center on Saturday. During the event, coalition organizers and leaders provided information to the public on candidates that will appear on their ballots and where they can vote, and also registered new voters. The new coalition was created by the Tompkins County Human Rights Commission and features organizations such as food pantries and government overwatch groups. The Newfield Central School District has received $200,000 more in funding for revamping its transportation services thanks to an inclusion in the New York State budget. The funding is slated for radio equipment for school buses and Chromebooks. It was also announced last week that the Newfield Central School District was one of the districts in New York receiving funding for electric school buses and the district received around $1.4 million total. This is your weekly politics beat. I'm George Christopher. On Wednesday, Ithaca City employees confronted the Common Council over wages and low benefits. According to the Ithaca Voice, workers complained that pay below parity and smaller benefits made it harder to attract new workers, leading to staffing issues. The group specifically called out City Attorney Ari Levine, the leader of the city's contract negotiation team. 
speakers argued that the city was attempting to balance its budget on the backs of lower wages for city workers. On Tuesday, voters in Lansing approved one capital project for the Lansing Central School District and rejected another. According to the Ithaca Voice, the town approved the non-pipeline alternatives project, which will reduce the district's usage of natural gas. Specifically, the project will update the middle school's HVAC system. The middle school is the district's largest user of natural gas. The project was approved with a slim majority. The second so-called Bobcat project included a wide range of updates to school facilities. The project was rejected by a fairly wide margin with over 63% of voters voting against. Ithaca is in the home stretch of its special mayoral election. According to the Ithaca Voice, recent filings with the Federal Elections Commission found that Democratic nominee Laura Lewis and progressive candidate Katie Sims are neck and neck in terms of fundraising, with both raising over $6,800. Of that, Lewis has spent a little over $4,000 on the campaign, with Sims spending nearly $2,700. Republican Zachary Wynn has only raised a little under $800, with most of that coming in the form of non-monetary contributions, and most of it coming from the Tompkins County Republican Party. Siena College has released polling for New York's 19th congressional district, which includes Tompkins County. In the race for the House, the poll shows Democrat Josh Riley leading with 48% and Republican Mark Molinero at 43. In September, the same pollster found Riley leading Molinero 46 to 41. With such a small difference and neither candidate getting over 50% of the vote, this is very much anyone's race. The poll also found voters in the 19th district were supporting Lee Zeldin, with 50% saying they would vote for him, and 45% saying they would vote for Democratic incumbent Kathy Hochul. Reporting for Ithaca Now, I'm George Christopher. You're listening to Ithaca Now, and I'm your host, Blake Matthews. Media Fest is an event that was held by multiple media organizations, including the Society of Professional Journalists, or SPJ for short. WICB News Director Beck Legato spoke with Assistant News Director of the Ithagan, Lorraine Thine, the Society of Professional Journalists Director of Programming, Madeline Maxwell, and SPJ member Griffin Frechette to recount their experiences with this event. Media Fest is a four-day-long media conference that is held by the Society of Professional Journalists, the Associated Collegiate Press, and the College Media Association to allow for students and professional journalists to attend panels with established journalists to learn more about the field and about different niches of corporate journalism. Media Fest is held in a different location every year, though this year it was held in the political capital, Washington, D.C., this past weekend. This is the first time that Media Fest has been held in person since the pandemic. Last year, the fest was set to happen in New Orleans, though due to the emergence of Omicron and Hurricane Ida, it was moved to virtual. This year included multiple well-known panelists, including Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the journalists who produced the Watergate Papers, John Quinn Nunez, who is, was the host of What Would You Do, and is a correspondent for ABC 2020, as well as many others appeared for this event. I spoke with... My name is Lorian Tyne. I am the assistant news editor for The Ithacan, one of them. Um, and I've been working for The Ithacan for this is my third semester. My name is Madeline Maxwell. I'm a senior journalism major here at Ithaca College, and I currently serve as the vice president of communications for our chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. My name is Griffin Frechette. I am a 
I'm also a senior journalism major here at the Ithaca College Roy Park School of Communications about their experiences attending this conference. So to start, what was MediaFest in your own words? Um, I honestly didn't really know what it was before I got there, really. I had never heard of it before. Um, but it was kind of just like a, a event where journalists came together, and not just journalists, but also photographers and design designers, design editors, um, and just a lot of different kind of sections of the journalism field. And we just got to kind of like learn about a bunch of different things. And there were different like uh, kind of table talks. So you could just kind of just talk with other people. Um, and they were all, a lot of them were student journalists, but there were also people there in kind of more professional, um, like out of college, I guess, fields. So that was very cool. So I don't know, I guess it was just like, a learning event but also a way to network and connect with people in the field i have never really done anything professionally relating to my career before because i was a transfer student so when i was sort of given this opportunity to go and network and experience just different facets of the professional journalism world i was really excited because it's not something i've ever really went out and done before as I mentioned, I was a transfer, so coming into Ithaca, I always felt like I was kind of a step behind. And uh, MediaFest made me realize that I'm I'm not really. I do have passion for this thing, and uh, it was really special to see all these wonderful journalists talk and hear about the creative process and that, you know, the creative process of journalism is actually still alive and well. I think that was a really big theme that I took away from the MediaFest. I think for me, similarly, um, I kind of, I don't come from a very urban background. I don't live near a major news network um, or anything like that. So MediaFest was a great opportunity to um, finally get to really network in person um, because everything's been on Zoom the past couple of years with journalists who work in major news networks and um, various locations across the United States. Um, and it was a great opportunity not just to network with them, but to hear them speak about some of the work they produced. And I think that really caused me to widen my um, kind of thoughts on <laughs> potential career paths for myself in the future. Um, they had someone who writes obituaries there, which was a kind of element of journalism I had never thought of. Um, so essentially, I think it introduced me to different sort of elements of the trade, which was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, Griffin, you kind of touched on this already, but I guess for Maddie in particular, have you ever attended any events kind of similar to this, or is this the first type of networking event that you've ever attended? For me, MediaFest was the first um, networking event that I've attended at all in my college career, um, just because I haven't had the opportunity to go with everything being remote the past couple of years. Um, I think the last time they had a media fest in person was my first year um, of college. And at that point, I wasn't really well aware of what SPJ was. Um, so, yeah, first first time getting to network with uh, professionals and, and network with other journalists more specifically. 
When speaking on how the experience went itself, there were differing opinions depending on everyone's experiences. Griffin described feeling overwhelmed, while Madeline spoke on feeling almost comforted by being around other student journalists. Lorian, who will elaborate in a moment, described it as being exciting. But yeah, so that was cool going to see all the all the you know monuments and such. Um, definitely interesting. Uh, but in terms of the conference, I it was interesting mix of like students and then people who were very experienced and and it wasn't just journalists. There were also people who were doing like part of uh, you know the uh, like data stuff and design stuff and there are also you know some people who are more focused in like activism so there's a lot of professors in different fields so I went to one session about like creating an anti-racist newsroom and uh, I went to one about just like being able to build a kind of engaged staff and and learning how to like keep them and keep them engaged and interested and and um because like I guess it's doing that again it's like not just like writing and editing stuff it's also like being able to like teach people and have a team and like lead that team which isn't it's definitely something that I it takes a lot of like learning um so it was cool to be able to have the opportunity to actually get some some advice and some you know uh build up my skills a little bit in in a setting where there are people outside of of Ithaca College that were telling me some important information. So, I mean, I think that there were some really cool sessions. Um and there were it was kind of hit or miss, I guess. I don't want to like say like too much bad things. It wasn't it definitely wasn't bad. I wouldn't say that. It was it was very good, but um I think it kind of just depends on what you're interested in and what like level of of knowledge you have. So there were some that were that were maybe a little bit more basic. Um, in terms of, you know, I guess they're just things that I like learned last year, um, on the job and such, um, and that my, you know, editor in chief last year and this year and my news editors before have kind of told me. So that it was interesting just seeing like the di- who was there and what people knew and the different levels of that. So, it- okay, so it was a little bit overwhelming at first because I. I'm someone who doesn't really adapt well to cities. And I mean, this is kind of the most city environment you can imagine. It's a, you know, a near like a, like a business casual event of professional media producers. That's about the most city thing you can get. Um, walking in the first day, there was just these throngs of crowds of people who looked so well prepared to be there. And it was terrifying. But... You know, we've been trained as journalists, and that gives us the ability to engage with people we've never met before. So it ended up being quite easy because almost everyone there was about the same level of prepared as you were to just have these long, meaningless conversations with people they've never met, which is, you know, the spirit of networking. And uh, it was terrifying at first, but it ended up being very, very, very fun. I have absolutely no <laughs> accreditation to my name at this point, so it was kind of fun to just act like I was a media professional for a little while, to almost play pretend and see how it would feel. I agree. I think I also 
Um, or took a little bit of that as well. I don't really want to work in broadcasting, but I was just so excited to see professionals um, from different news networks kind of, you know, being in the conference hall and like kind of throwing flyers in your face. It was really exciting. And I, I'm not interested in working at some of those stations, but I went up there and, and kind of pretended to be interested, but actually ended up being a bit interested. And I think um, it was a really great place for me to kind of um, sort of challenge um, kind of my own. Uh, I think it was a great experience for me to kind of challenge um, what I think I want to do in the future, um, just because I think I was really quick to sort of shut down um, broadcast, for example, as being a, a field of journalism that I want to go into. But there are lots of opportunities there, and it was very interesting to learn about them firsthand. So I think it did end up sparking some genuine interest, um, which was great. It gave me a lot to think about as a senior. Though there were differing overall opinions of the experience, when looking at the options for the panels themselves, everyone agreed that there wasn't nearly as much of a diverse array of options as they first expected, and noted a large emphasis on corporate media as opposed to independent outlets that has become extremely prevalent on Ithaca College's campus, thanks to the Park Center for Independent Media, or PCIM for short. But another takeaway is that we are kind of in the throes of the most corporatized media environment we've seen ever and it was kind of stunning to me how entrenched the conference was like it was supported by it was uh, sponsored by the nba among other organizations like you know the classic like cnn abc but it was so moneyed and institutional that it was I think a little scary to me because we spend a lot of our time talking about the importance of local journalism and the importance of independent journalism. And I don't know if it was emblematic of that. It was a fun conference, but I don't know that it was emblematic of what the future needs to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And it, for me, you know, it was, um, there was, I think more options, but I, I kind of, felt like I don't know I didn't know like who if like a lot of the people there were just journalists or if and there was just like fewer people in other fields or like who was kind of what was the selection process for making the sessions and deciding what they were wanting to bring um and you know they're the even the keynotes it was you know the the TikTok guy um that <laughs> made like news TikToks for the Washington Post I think and and even that is more like social media, but it's also still news reporting, but just in like a different way, I guess. And then there was Woodward and Bernstein, which was really awesome, but it was, again, news reporting centered. So I can see that like going there as somebody who maybe works in a different section, like copy editing or proofing or photography or video or design, like any of those things you might not have been quite as engaged, I guess, in some of the some of the things that they, they presented. but um, I think the biggest thing I learned um, from this conference was that I really don't want to work um, in large-scale corporate media. Um, I really did love the opportunity to get to meet and, and hear all these really famous big names in journalism speak. Um, and I know Griffin mentioned this earlier, but I think it was a little bit disheartening just to see um, – how many individuals really don't think about how corporate media is killing local journalism and doesn't really lend itself to promoting 
um, things like narrative journalism, which would be something I would be interested in pursuing. Um, so I think it really just highlighted the importance of this is the direction where media is headed, which is a very large-scale, corporate, um, mobile, social type of industry. Um, but with that kind of transformation comes the um, importance to stand up for and support um, local journalism, nonprofit journalism, literary narrative journalism, that kind of a thing, which I unfortunately did not see promoted at the conference. Um, and so I think it really just sort of reaffirmed for me that um, now's the time to, to stand up and defend um, our more traditional uh, elements of journalism. Griffin and Madeline also later added that they wanted more internship opportunities at the conference as well, noting that there was instead a lot of graduate school opportunities for seniors in college. I wished that there were more internship opportunities there for not just prospective students, but people who were, you know, nearing the end of academia or are just looking for experience post-academia, because I feel like it kind of operated on this assumption we have about the media that a degree is like necessary and formal training is necessary when some of the most important and groundbreaking journalists of our time don't have anything near the way of a journalism degree. Some of the most important journalists of our time only graduated high school. And I feel like it was a little weird that there wasn't more of a promotion of different experiential avenues. It was a little weird that it was just this inundation of grad schools. Yeah, I agree. And then when they had different media outlets there, it was a lot of um, like kind of media conglomerates, like corporate organizations, um, more specifically that run our own broadcast networks. So, you know, television, radio. But I was really shocked that there weren't any print outlets. I didn't even really see any print kind of conglomerates that were there, which was interesting. Um which, I don't know, maybe it's like a sign of the times, but that was kind of surprising to me. Um, and then just the amount of, like, sort of, like, summer programs that were there, but again, not a lot of internship opportunities was really interesting to me as well. We started to speak on the panels that everyone attended, and a common thread with everyone I spoke with was the Woodward and Bernstein keynote panel, where the president-elect of the Society of Professional Journalists, Claire Regan, talked about their experience producing Watergate and their current endeavors. Last weekend also marked the 50th anniversary of the publishing of Watergate. Madeline started speaking on the importance of the panel. Well, I think the one that stood out to me the most was obviously seeing Woodward and Bernstein in person, um, talking about kind of uh, the anniversary of the Pentagon Papers and just their reporting process back then and, and even... Um, how they've adapted that process to fit sort of modern journalism. Um, I mean, it was, I, honestly, I was obsessed with Watergate uh, when I took A push, and so it was a dream come true to um, see two of the journalism greats on stage together in one room. It's kind of like a pinch me type moment. Um, and so I wish I could say I learned um, a ton from it, but in, in reality, I was just very starstruck um, by them the whole time. But that, that was... Um, probably something I'll never forget that and then I saw John Quinones from What Would You Do in the hotel lobby. I think honestly to echo Maddie uh, something that she said earlier is during the Woodward and Bernstein speech I was awestruck but I also came out of it with this deep sense of 
wow, these are what journalism greats are like. I don't want to be that. I do not want to be that. And uh, it's obviously nothing against them. They're magical and wonderful. I just realized that that's not the life I'm trying to pursue. And, you know, to learn that from MediaFest is valuable information. I mean, I think any any news girly that was there was kind of a Woodward and Bernstein, Bernstein girl. So <laughs> that was... Um, and it was it was interesting because it wasn't even like I don't know I feel like I was watching like Ellen or something they were like they were just like making jokes and like making fun of each other and it was just very like silly but they were also like imparting some some interesting kind of advice and experience that they they had had um, and connecting their like past reporting with Watergate with like current um, events so that was definitely very cool and and fun funny to watch. Um, but I don't know, I, I, even though there were, like, larger keynote speakers, I did appreciate, I think, some of the, um, you know, professors and younger people that were doing some of the sessions that, um, maybe didn't, weren't in the game as long as Woodward and Bernstein, but definitely had some very insightful, um, things to talk about, and, and I definitely took, took notes and was excited to share with my team back here that and the people that didn't get to go, um, what was talked about. Here is a snippet from Woodward and Bernstein themselves in this keynote event. And let me give you some advice. And the advice is beware the demons pomposity. Beware the demons pomposity. Good advice in 1974, really good advice now for journalists, for politicians, Wall Street, Hollywood, uh, the demon pomposity walks the halls of too many of our institutions. And Catherine Graham had a profound insight about the dangers. And you, you used to always talk about, we can't be, you know, be in this world of self-congratulation. We have to be, get out of it. Well, if we projected that to our, first of all, the stories we were writing early on in Watergate were not believed by most of the Washington press corps. Uh, there was great doubt, who are these two kids? These are 28, they're 29 years old, they never covered the White House. Like we have, uh, stuff can't be true. Nixon would never do anything like this. Nixon's too smart. He's too smart. Nixon <laughs> believes in digging. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and even in our newsroom, there, there was skepticism uh, about us. And, and, and we said to each other, look, uh, at no point can, uh, can people in this newsroom think that we have an agenda. And I guess the best example, and I'll tell a little story, uh, is that, that after about 10 weeks, um, we were about to run a story saying that John Mitchell, the former Attorney General of the United States, Nixon's law partner and manager of his presidential campaign, was one of the people, of five people, who controlled the secret fund that had paid for undercover activities against Nixon's Democratic opponents. And the information from that story, interestingly enough, had started with that book. And we had gone up the chain, uh, and, and Ben Bradley, the editor, we, we would have uh, coffee in a, a vending machine. We were right off.
floor. And, and Bradley came in where, where we were talking and, and, and he said, you guys better be right on this. Uh, he said, and he said, there's never been a story like this. Uh, you're about to say that the former Attorney General of the United States is a crook, were his words. Uh, just be sure you're right, he kind of exited. I put a dime in the coffee machine, which is what coffee costs. <laughs> And it was the worst bar. <laughs> it's not worth it, Donald. And I literally, literally felt the chill. Only time in my life go down my back. And I turned to Woodward and I said, Oh my God, this president is going to be impeached. I'm aware of that because it was a long time before anybody uttered the word impeach or impeachment. And Woodward looked at me and he said, Oh my God, you're right. And we can never use that word impeach or hint at any such thing around this newspaper because they'll think people like the paper that we have an agenda. And it was a year before the impeachment drive began uh, after the Saturday Night Massacre when Nixon uh, fired the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. But the reason you said he's going to be impeached, and the reason I agreed was we had the kind of ground source, uh, ground truth sources, and we had Mark Felt saying, you know, really pushing you. It's in the book. It's in the, it's in the movie. Of, you know, wait a minute. Go. You know, go harder, dig, you know, you don't understand what's in front of you. And the sequence of, it's true, we didn't understand what was in front of us, and we again collaborated. You had somebody who called you and said there was a guy named Donald Segretti who recruited him for dirty tricks. It turned out that the FBI had done this investigation of Segretti, and he was kind of the lead dirty trickster for Nixon. And uh, so, it, it, but we had seen, oh no, you, I, when you go no, like no, that, no, I no, shut no, up. No, 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 well my point was, I'm looking at the audience, and most of the people here are student journalists. And, and I think where we're going here in this discussion is that there comes a moment, if you've done your reporting right, you understand the dimensions of the story you're working on. Uh, and, and whether or not the dimensions are really there for the story. And sometimes they're, they're not. not. That's and, exactly and, right. and that's the problem. Sometimes uh, you work a long time, and uh, you know, sometimes these things get published, and in a way, somebody should spike them, as they say, because, uh, and we both have worked on stories where you come up dry, and you have to face dryness when it's there. But just to finish the scene as student journalists, when I uh, started in the business, uh, I, I started when I was 16, and I go to the University of Maryland very briefly, and, uh, but I was working on a story. Very briefly. Very briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, dropped out, I dropped out pretty early. Uh, 
And I was working on a story about the chaplains at the University of Maryland. And it, because they were under attack for trying to get involved in, in civil rights, for they were against the fraternity system uh, because of its excesses. And there came a day, and I knew this was, I sort of knew this, this is a good story because the president of the university really wanted to get rid of these chaplains. And then I learned that one of the things the president of the university had been most concerned about is that they wanted to encourage students to go downtown here to hear Martin Luther King. And the minute I knew that they had tried to suppress that, just like the, the moment in the, in the room with the coffee machine, I said, oh, that there comes a time when, when you're able to put it together and you know the story is there and it's bigger than you first imagined. Yeah. <clears throat> Which leads us to Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> before I go there, um, just one yeah, last... That was a great segue. <laughs> 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 gentlemen are a delight to speak with. You don't even need, need a moderator. You just kind of moderate yourself. Yeah, we need somebody to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bob, you had mentioned, just to go back to reporting techniques, quickly and then we'll move on to that other topic. Um, <laughs> other topic. You mentioned there's a you mentioned there's a perfect time to knock on a door of a source. What is that perfect time? Can you share yeah. that tip with us? It's a okay, great tip. well uh, real quickly, uh, one of the Bush books, George W. Bush books I did on his war, there was a key general who would not talk. And so I learned where he lived in the Washington area. And I sent emails, intermediaries, phone calls, total silence. And I realized, so this is uh, you know, 20 years ago, not even 20, and I've, I've become lazy uh, that I was going to see people at their offices or their homes or they would come. And so this was a big no. So I, when I found out where he lived, uh, the question was, and let's ask the students, you're work, we're working together. What's the best time to go knock on the door of a four-star general? <laughs> Uncooperative and might have a gun. <laughs> what? Somebody tell me that. Five o'clock. Yes. Five o'clock. Eight o'clock. Just do it. Okay. Okay. It turns out the best time to go is. Uh, 8.17 at night on a Tuesday. <laughs> because you don't want to go on a Monday uh, because everyone's beginning the week. You don't want to go in the latter part of the week because everyone's thinking about an exit. Uh, so 8.17 on a Tuesday, I knock on his door and he opens the door and looks at me and says, are you still doing this? Why do you call it 11? Because you want cooperation? What also are you saying to somebody that you call at 11 o'clock at night? It's important to you. You want to treat them as seriously as they take themselves. He picked up at 11. I, I, and I said, I want to talk to you tonight. He used the word, I won't repeat. And he said, are you crazy? And I said, well, 
Uh, I'm four blocks from your house. <laughs> my house. How do you know where I live? That's the easy part. So come on over, block. His wife was not there, stayed for hours, got documents, went, I mean, it developed a source who was kind of sitting there waiting, quite frankly, for somebody to call. At 11 o'clock at night, got left out of the movie. On, on an occasion, uh, after these stories about Mitchell and others had broken, uh, I was sitting at my desk, and I got a call from the guard downstairs uh, at the Washington Post. And he said, there's a guy here with a subpoena for your notes. I said, keep him down there. <laughs> Don't let him up. And uh, it turned out that, that the Nixon re-election committee had filed a lawsuit really specifically to get our notes. And so I called Bradley once again in his office, and I said, hey, there's a guy downstairs who's got a subpoena for our notes. Uh, what do we do? What do I do? Bradley said, first, don't let him up. <laughs> and then he said, uh, let me go talk to Catherine. Give me five minutes. He came back and he said to me, Catherine says they're not your notes. They're her notes. And if anybody's going to go to jail, she said, it's going to be and then she, she meant it, and so uh, Bradley never uh, adverse to seeing an opportunity started saying, oh, Catherine's going to go to jail to protect all the notes of Watergate and Nixon, and then Ben said, no, And the First Amendment. And the First Amendment. And uh, think of that picture of our gal pulling up in her limousine to the Women's Detention Center in the District of Columbia and out gets Catherine Graham to protect the First Amendment. And then you get a little extravagant at times and say, I think that picture will run on the front page of not only every paper in America, but in the world. <laughs> and, but, didn't have to happen because the Republicans backed down they knew she had drawn a personal line and they were going to go across it. I also love hearing how much access you had to the publisher as two young reporters and... We you know, took it. Right? Yeah, you took advantage of it. This is great. I'm going to move on to another category. Um, and move up more towards the present. We have... Um, let's talk about comparisons. Uh, this past June, Bob and Carl, you co-wrote a column in the Washington Post in which you compared Donald Trump's actions on January 6, 2020 to the Watergate scandal. In the column, you noted that Trump's deception, quote, exceeded even Nixon's imagination. Can you tell us more about that? Well, to begin with, it, it actually that column was based on a new introduction that we had written to the 50th anniversary edition of All the President's Men. And, and, you know, we said we'd given 50 years of, of thought and a lot of stories to Richard Nixon, and it was unimaginable to us that anything could surpass what Nixon had done in terms of criminality, in terms of undermining democratic notions. And then, literally, in, in that sort of sense, and then 
the long game dollars. And, and so what is it that, that reporting, reporting, not opinion, that, that we know and came to develop as stories about Trump? Not just that he was a criminal president, but that he was really the first seditious president in our history. And it was important to use that word sedition because of what it means. It means to inspire and encourage uh, an insurrection against the very government that the President of the United States has taken an oath to protect and to consider the interests of the people. And that piece begins with a quote from George Washington in, in, in his farewell address. Of 1796. In which he says that unprincipled men may come to occupy this high office. And basically what Washington said is, this is the weak spot in our democracy. Because if those unprincipled men put their interest, and he used the word pursuit, of personal and political gain in front of the interest of the United States, this is the great danger. And Trump had not only run with the great danger, but taken the presidency to a precipice in terms of authoritarianism, in terms of that uh, insurrection on January 6th, in terms of refusing to leave office, trying to come up with a way that he could continue to hold office after losing the presidency. And so that became part of the basis for concluding and I, and how I did worse. three books on Trump and uh, went back with my assistant, Claire McMullen, who's in the, uh, what, raise your hand, a 28-year-old lawyer from Australia, if you can, uh, and uh, Australian citizenship, American citizenship. Anyway, so we start listening to these and uh, interviews that I did with Trump in 2020 and realized it's a new dimension to Trump when you hear him in his own voice. And there are, we have put this out and uh, there's been much thought about it and much commentary about it. But what you hear is Trump, and it's, uh, I agree with Carl completely on Trump was a seditious president. And the January 6th uh, committee is proof of that, to I think any objective observer. But the other thing that we discovered in these tapes for eight hours, and we just put them out, uh, I guess, about 10 days ago, that Trump does not understand the presidency. And this is a dimension that is so essential to his character. It's all about him. One example. Uh, we should have brought some of the actual tapes.
surprise to both of you? Did, was, was that a surprise that he was so willing to talk to both, to you, Bob, especially? Comparing Fett to Nixon, who was paranoid and secretive, you had this president. No, but this was back in 2020. Now he's sitting president at yeah. this time. And so he, uh, he calls, and uh, my wife and I, uh, Elf and I, and Claire was at an office in the house, and the phone would ring. Oh, no, you weren't there then in 2020. Um, that uh, one of our daughters, is it a robocall, or is it Donald Trump? <laughs> 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 the first time Elsa picked up the phone and the voice came on and said, Is Bob there? And uh, she said, May I ask who's calling? Didn't recognize the voice. She said, Donald Trump. Well, the second part, though, which is about his negligence with the pandemic, which really is a president guilty of, of homicidal negligence. Lorian also spoke on an anti-racism panel that she attended and how she was able to use a lot of the information from that panel in the newsroom following the event. I mean, I, I think that the anti-racism session was really interesting because it was talking about um, accessibility, I guess, just in general. Um, and like who is on the editorial board? Who is our staff? Um, who are we? I guess, advocating for what do our stories look like or who is getting positive and negative stories. And even if you take that outside of like a anti-racism perspective and, and, and open it up beyond race, like obviously it's important there. But then, you know, if you apply that same concept to a lot of other areas, like, you know, are we just writing about park? Like what sections of the school have we not talked about in a while that there's something cool is happening? Like maybe we need to expand our reach or like are we sourcing different people enough that have different perspectives and um like is our editorial board accessible for people to actually feel like they can join um and and feel comfortable being there um and just kind of like that outreach stuff and like just thinking about it and they gave some great ideas about um I guess making trying to make that access more accessible and and thinking about what you can do so not just like like we have a diversity report, but um, of just like kind of figuring out like, oh, who who is our staff, who is our board? But then what this session kind of brought me to, to thinking about is not just doing that, but also doing this like diversity audit, um, which is basically, uh, I guess if you're thinking about it in terms of stories or, uh, or sources, like actually kind of cataloging who, you're talking to like what like what sources like gender ethnicity maybe what school they're in what major they're in like kind of like writing down like th that basic information so you can be like are we actually getting the whole perspective of everyone at the school or are we missing certain groups and I thought that was really interesting because as much as we definitely try to I think that it's more it's we've never been like that meticulous about it so that is something that I definitely am interested in in doing, and I don't know. 
I think that's like the, one of the big things that I took away. <laughs> the Ithacan was also honored during Media Fest at the Pacemaker Awards, having won the Pacemaker 100 Award and also winning fourth for newspaper and sixth for website for the Best of Show Awards in their college size category. Lorian spoke on the experience and the lasting impact the ceremony has had on the office. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely very cool being um, part of that at all. Um, we did win a few things, but honestly, I the the best part of it for me was just being able to see like how many student newspapers and yearbooks and um, you know online magazines and all these different organizations that students have been a part of and like all the cool things that they're doing and I think just from being there and seeing on this like big screen of like this person won this for this thing and look at their paper and we got so many I guess I got very inspired by things that we could be doing and different things to try out whether it's like the layout of our paper or different kinds of photos that we could try to do or um I don't know topics that a school uh looked into that maybe we could uh, apply to to a, a report here um and things to just to follow to support like other student um student run media so that was like that was the best part of it for me but this was the first time that i had been there while we were accepting something and i it definitely just felt very um i i just felt very appreciative of of being recognized in any way because um, I think everyone on our board works in our staff, our staff very much so. Um, we all work very hard and um, and are doing it while we're learning. So being able to kind of be a newspaper and multimedia uh, organization that is doing really well in terms of, of, of student media in general, that like we are... I don't know, able to, to to be recognized for the stuff that we do because um, like you can come to the Ithacan and have no experience and we will get you on a story and we will show you how to do it and in a few weeks you're kind of just doing it and it's really cool to, to watch our staff um, get to that point and just be able to kind of get their hands dirty, I guess, with, with reporting and everything. So... Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I'm just very appreciative of being being able to ha have the experience of being at the Ithacan. So it was kind of just a reminder, I think, of of that that opportunity. Everyone then began to speak on their thoughts a couple of days out from the experience, with Madeline and Griffin, who are both seniors, speaking about the struggles they have had returning to academia. Lorian, on the other hand, spoke on how the newspaper got some re-energized hope and motivation following the event. I think. The largest takeaway for me was that there are so many different things you can do within the journalism industry. Yeah. You don't just have to be a print journalist or an editor or a broadcaster. Um, I mentioned earlier that like I'd never thought about obituary writing being something that I would be interested in, but it's definitely a side of journalism that you can go into if you like. Um, on the flip side, there's many different types of um, producing that you can do. Um, so I think I really appreciated just how um, broad the conference was in covering so many different elements of our industry um, that I don't think we promote enough uh, in the classroom, or at least I don't think has been promoted enough for me um, in my years as a journalism student. So that was probably my favorite. 
I don't know. I think that it definitely can, you can get very overwhelmed by producing things every single week and just kind of this never ending work cycle, especially when it's not a nine to five job. So there's plenty of nights where I'm up at, you know, 2 a.m. editing things, writing stuff, getting things through, um, ready for the paper and, and putting stuff online. So it can get tiring, definitely. So it was nice to have a weekend where I think that a lot of us were kind of inspired to like and kind of got our our energy back a little bit um because you can get into this routine of just like pushing out content and I think it's important to like sometimes take a step back and like realize what you're a part of on a larger scale um so it was nice just to get that kind of a little bit of a spark back um and get excited about doing some some new things. Um. The past weekend, I I feel great about that. But I I think as a senior, coming back into academia after this experience of, you know, faking it until you make it almost, you know, that 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 classic just out of college feeling. I don't. College has lost a little bit of its luster for me after doing that, honestly. And that's a little bit unfortunate because it made me realize that I actually do, in fact, want to graduate, and I think I'm ready. For WICB News, I'm Beck Legato. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from manager of television and radio operations, Jerry Menard. WICB station manager Connor Hibbard and programming director Harrison Kana. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by news director Beck Legato with assistance from news managing director Jordan Brooking and news production director Ibayani Abarasan and our web coordinator Evan Clark. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback? Story ideas? Just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We'll be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday.